0: and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. As we began our study through the Sermon on the Mount, I laid out for you some guidelines of interpretation, if you'll remember, or maybe you wrote them down. Um, If not, I will remind you quickly. I gave you four things to remember as we study the Sermon on the Mount. The first is we must interpret the sermon from a relationship with God, not for a relationship with God. We must interpret it from a relationship with the king, not for a relationship with the king. Secondly, I said we must interpret the whole sermon, not just the parts of the sermon. That people love to take the Sermon on the Mount and just pull out nice sayings and give uh, credit Jesus with it, but they're, they're not seeing the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. Third, we said we must interpret the sermon with an evangelistic eye, not an arrogant eye. Not an eye that's like I'm better than everybody else if I follow the Sermon on the Mount, but an evangelistic eye of this is an opportunity for us to spread the gospel through the ways that we live our lives. That'll set us apart from the culture that we live in. And then number four, we said we must interpret the sermon with a humble heart, not a prideful heart. That we come to the Sermon on the Mount as citizens of the kingdom of God, that he is the king. And so we must come not with a prideful heart of I'm, I'm gonna do this on my own strength, but we're coming with the humble heart of we wanna live in a manner worthy of the gospel to which we call our own and we wanna be different. And so we humble ourselves under the words of our king. The one that I wanted to just remind you of before we get to our section of scripture today is the first one. We must interpret the sermon from a relationship with the king, not for a relationship with the king. Jesus is implying by the things that he says on the sermon on the mount, that you are already a citizen of the kingdom of God. So I said, we must view the sermon of the mount on the mount, not as an assembly manual, something being put together, but as an owner's manual. An assembly manual shows us how to put something together, whereas an owner's manual shows us how to get the most out of what has already been put together. The Sermon on the Mount is an owner's manual. We're already made righteous in Christ, and this is how we live in light of that. So we must remember that as we study and especially as we come to these six topics that Jesus is going to talk about today, that this comes from a relationship with Christ, not for a relationship with Christ. So the question begs of us today, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If we study the word and we're studying the Sermon on the Mount and it is for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, do you have a relationship with God? Well, what does that mean? Well, let me give you just a simple explanation before we get into the text today. I've, you've probably heard this before, but it's referred to as the ABCs of the gospel. The A is that you admit that you're a sinner. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The first step in this relationship with God is to admit that you and I are a sinner. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. You're sitting in a room full of sinners. That's the first thing you must acknowledge your need for a savior, that you're a sinner. You fall short of the glory of God. Then the B is to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and he rose again 3 days 3 days later according to the scriptures john 3:16 reminds us of this for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. So you must believe, you must trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So admit you're a sinner, believe that Jesus died for you, and the last C is confess Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, 9 and 10. He says, because if we confess or you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So how do you start and begin a relationship with God? Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and was buried and rose again. And confess Jesus to be the Lord, the king of your life, and the savior of your life. And at that moment, you enter a relationship with God. And so then when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you're coming from a relationship with God, not for a relationship with God. So it causes you to interpret scripture much differently than that. When you see it as, I already have a relationship with the king with Jesus, And now I'm just to live out these things that he is calling me to live out. He is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he's going to do it in this next section by uh, giving us this rhythm of sayings. He, he's going to say it this way. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Six times, Jesus is going to use this same terminology. You have heard it said, but I say to you. You see, it's bracketed around verse 20, which says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then verse 48, at the end of this section, will say, be perfect as I am perfect. So it's surrounded around this idea of perfection, And he's saying to them, this is what it means for you to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. So this relationship that you have with God, what does it look like for you to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect? Well, he's going to explain that to us through this rhythm of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You see, the point of this section is that the scribes and the Pharisees that we found in verse 20 were misinterpreting scripture. They were focusing on the actions, the outward, whereas Jesus and God were focusing on the heart, the inward. They had made following God an outward thing, not an inward deal. Whereas from the beginning, it has always been about the heart. And so Jesus comes to correct some misinterpretations that they had made about the scriptures and say, no, this was the heart of God. This is what he was after with these things. It reminds me of a parenting story I heard recently about a young man. We'll just refer to him as Johnny was picking on his younger siblings by taking their toys. And so he would go and take their toys and he would go and hide them in his room. He would do this over and over and finally his siblings got fed up with it. So they went to mom and dad and they said to mom and dad, Johnny keeps taking our toys and hiding them in his room. So they called Johnny in and say, Johnny, stop touching your siblings toys, You have your own toys. You don't need those toys. Stop touching your siblings toys. Well, a few days later, His siblings come back to his parents again and say, mom and dad, Johnny's taking our toys. So they call Johnny into the room and they say, Johnny, I thought we told you not to touch their toys. And Johnny looks at them and says, I'm not touching their toys. Hmm. What's going on? So the parents begin to prod, poke and prod a little bit. Like, what do you mean? you're not? They, they said they found their toys in your room. So they go into Johnny's room and they begin to investigate. And they find a pair of tongs in Johnny's room. And what Johnny had done is he went to the kitchen and no, he wasn't touching the toys. The tongs were actually touching the toys, but he was still taking the toys. Johnny illustrates for us what is going on in the text today. The scribes and Pharisees knew the law and the prophets and the commands of Scripture and they were technically following them, but in reality, their heart was breaking the commands of Scripture. They were focused on the action. No, we're not touching the toys, whereas God was focused on their heart. So how Jesus lays this out for us is he gives us six antitheses Found in Mar in Matthew chapter five, verses twenty-one through verse forty-eight. Uh, an antithesis is the direct opposite of someone, right? So these are the direct opposite of what you've heard basically. You have heard it said from the scribes and the Pharisees that this is the interpretation of the scriptures, but I say to you, that it's the direct opposite. So here's the fun topics that we get to discuss over the next. Few weeks together. Anger, which is murder, adultery, which we'll talk about lust, divorce, the priority of marriage, oaths, retaliation, vengeance. Jesus takes these six topics and says, You have heard it said, but I say to you, He's taking us to the heart of the law, He's taking us from the letter of the law. To the spirit of the Lord. so would you please stand with me and I'm going to read the first three that we're going to tackle together today in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through verse 32 here's what Jesus says in regards to murder adultery and divorce you have heard So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to the court, lest your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. let your whole body go into hell. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Father, we've got some heavy topics to tackle this morning together as a church. So I pray that you would give us humble hearts. I pray that you would help us to come at this text from a relationship with you, not for a relationship with you. Give us ears to hear today. And then Lord, I pray that you would help us to be obedient to your word. It's really easy when we're talking about anger and lust And the priority of marriage, it's real easy to look at other people's sins and not our own. So help us to see the speck in our own eyes today. And then give us the courage to do something about it. Help us not to just be hearers of the word today, but to be doers of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the first antithesis that Jesus begins with in verse 21 is that you have heard it said to those of old that you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Jesus here is quoting the sixth commandment Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13 where it says you shall not murder. If you go to Numbers chapter 35 and verse 31, you find that there was a penalty for murder. A premeditated murder was to be liable of the death penalty and they would have to go to court to deal with the situation. So Jesus says, you've heard it said, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. So he is quoting Exodus 20 and verse 13, Numbers 35 and verse 31. But Jesus says to them, but I say to you, showing his authority, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Jesus is saying to his audience that it's not just about the act of murder, In the kingdom of God, it is about what leads to the murder, which is anger that comes from the heart. In James chapter 4, in verse 1 and 2, James got a hold of this and understood what Jesus was saying. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, when James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, is it not this? that your passions, your desires are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Murder begins in the heart. You don't just wake up one day and go murder someone. It typically starts with the heart. And so Jesus says, you may be able to raise your hand and say, yeah, I've never murdered anyone. But that's not the heart of that command. The heart of that command is if you're angry with your brother or sister. We know in scripture there is righteous anger. The Bible talks about this. Be angry and do not sin. That there's this righteous anger. But we also know in scripture there is an unrighteous anger. And I would define unrighteous anger in this way. Unrighteous anger is a deep smoldering bitterness that turns into destructive behavior like murder. So, unrighteous anger is a deep, smoldering bitterness that turns into destructive behavior. So, it's a, a smoldering, a, a deep bitterness that we hold on to that eventually turns into murder. You see it here in the text because there's intensifying consequences, but it's also intensifying anger. Look at verse 22. "But, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable, he says, to judgment. He is saying everyone who is holding on to bitterness in their heart towards their brother and sister is going to go to local court just like a murderer. So he starts there. He's saying everyone who's holding on to bitterness in their heart will eventually go to court just like a murderer is liable of judgment. But then it begins to build. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. He's saying everyone who is slandering or gossiping about another Christian is liable now, not just to go to the local court. Now, when he says they go to the council, it would be like us saying today, you're going before the Supreme Court, right? So it's building here. You start as this bitterness that's in your heart that leads you to need to go before the council. Then it moves to something even more where you begin to slander and gossip with your mouth. Now he says that's liable of going to the Supreme Court. And then he gets to the most intense when he says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. He says, everyone who curses a brother or sister in Christ is guilty enough to be thrown into hell. That's intense. What does he mean when he says, you fool? We don't typically say that to each other today, like you fool, right? But I think cursing is the right, probably feel of the text that you would wish on another brother and sister in Christ that they would go to hell and that you would even verbalize that about them. That is the level of intensity that is building. That's why unrighteous anger is a deep smoldering bitterness that turns into this violent act such as murder. It just doesn't wake up one day and it's like, I'm gonna murder somebody. It starts in the, the heart. And Jesus says, whoever gets to the place where they are cursing their brother and sister in Christ, they are guilty enough to be thrown into hell. This is the first time that Jesus mentions hell. hell Jesus uses the term hell 11 times. And we know hell to be a place of end time punishment for those who reject Jesus. In the context, in the word that is used for hell... It referred to a city trash dump where they would take the trash and they would throw it, and there was a fire and a smoke and a stench that never ended in that place. It was constantly burning. People were constantly bringing their trash. It constantly stunk. And Jesus uses this word picture for us to see what it means to be separated from God forever it is hell. Hell is a place of unquenchable fire and eternal punishment where God cast all those who reject Him. That's found in Luke chapter 12 and verse five. So Jesus raises the stakes when he says, "If you brothers and sisters in Christ are willing to curse each other, you are liable of the hell, a fire of hell." Imagine the shock on his audience's face. Yes, murderers, they deserve hell, but not the brother or sister of Christ that's angry with each other. That's the least, right? The, The most important commandment is don't murder. The least is being angry with your brother and sister in Christ. And yet Jesus says they deserve hell. Jesus is awakening them from their sleep. They had been lulled into believing as long as they didn't murder someone, as long as when you read through the 10 commandments, you could raise your hand and say, have you ever murdered? Nope, I got out of that one. They thought they were good. And yet Jesus is saying, it's not just about your outward obedience. It's not that you can raise your hand and say, I haven't murdered anyone. It's really about your heart. And if you hold on to bitterness that is leading towards anger to another brother and sister in Christ, you're liable of the same hell that the murderer that's rejected Jesus is liable of. In verse 23 through 26, Jesus illustrates his interpretation of the command by showing us the importance of dealing with anger and the urgency by which we should deal with it. Look at verse 23 through 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, you've come to church and there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go first to be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. He's saying if you have been wronged by a person or you are wronged or you are the person that is wronged, get it right before you You worship God. Jesus is showing us the importance of dealing with anger in our hearts. If you have anger in your heart towards another brother or sister in Christ, based off the word of Jesus, I would encourage you to deal with it. That's what he's saying. Stop coming to church and singing the songs and taking communion and going through the motions while you harbor bitterness in your heart deal with it. Go to that person. If you feel like maybe you've wronged somebody, go to that person. There's no place in the church for this idea of holding bitterness against each other. We should deal with it. And that's what Jesus is saying. You shouldn't walk into the church and sit on one side of it because you don't want to talk to the person that's on the other side of it. You shouldn't come in one door of the church because you want to avoid a person who's coming in the other door of the church. And if that is the case for you, may you hear the words of Jesus today and respond to it and not say, well, I have never murdered anybody, so I'm good. No, God is after your heart and he doesn't want the kind of bitterness and anger that leads to murder in your heart. He wants to dig that out of your heart. So I would encourage you to to deal with it. And in the same way that I would encourage you to deal with the bitterness in your heart, I would encourage you to not to use that as an excuse to not come to worship. Because I think we live in a time where it's like, oh, well, I'm going to, I just, I've got some problem with some people at the church. And so I'm not going to come to church now and gather with God's people. And then what happens is years down the road, you're not in church at all. And you're not gathering with God's people because you've let bitterness build up in your heart. So go deal with it. If you've got some, if it's with me, if it's one of our pastors, go deal with this. Somebody sitting in the church, go and ask. Just deal with it. This is what he's, we have to to not let it grow in the heart and life of our church. Then look at verse 25 and verse 26. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. If you are the one, here's what he's saying, if you're the one who's caused the anger because of a decision that you have made that has led them, and this is serious, to take you to court, deal with it quickly. Confess it, repent of it, and deal with it so that you don't have to go to court. That's the urgency with which he is saying to deal with it. Like if it's a really intense situation, you're the one that's wrong, deal with it urgently. Don't allow it to go to the courts. Stop it before then. You as the one who've offended, confess it, repent of it, deal with it together as brothers and sisters in Christ and let's not get to that place of going to court. Kingdom living is about the heart and Jesus says, "Murder starts in your heart, and it looks like ang- anger." We are living in hypocrisy. If we say this, "I am good with God," but I'm not good with my brother or sister in Christ. John would put it this way: in First John chapter four, and verse twenty, if anyone says, "I love God," and hates his brother, He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Ouch. So listen, don't leave this church angry. If you've got something, don't don't leave angry. Let's talk about it. Let's work through it together. It grieves my heart when people leave our church and we, through the grapevine, find out that they're angry. Don't, Don't do that. That's not good for your spiritual walk with Jesus. And I care more about the attendance of our church. I care about your heart. And I desire for you to be a people that walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So if that's at Antioch, praise the Lord. If that's at Pleasant Valley, praise the Lord. If, If that's at Liberty Christian Fellowship, praise the Lord. If that's at Redeemer Fellowship, praise the Lord. If that's at Fellowship KC, praise the Lord. If that's at name another church, Northland Baptist, praise the Lord but I care about your heart. And going from one church to another church with an angry bitterness building in your heart, that's not good for the other church either. And so let's be a people that model what Jesus has called and say, we just don't raise our hand and say, we're not a bunch of murderers here, but we hold on to bitterness in our heart. Let's be a people that deal with the bitterness that it is in our heart so it doesn't lead to murder because God is all about the heart told you these are fun number two gets even funner adultery verse 27 Jesus says you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery Jesus is talking here about the seventh command Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 that says you shall not commit adultery he's like you've heard that said and adultery in Jesus' time was even uh, liable of being punishable by death. In Leviticus chapter 20 in verse 10. and Deuteronomy chapter 22 in verse 22. And so Jesus says, you've, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. Adultery is when a married person has sexual relationships with anyone who is not his or her spouse. That's adultery. So he says, you have heard, don't commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Hmm. But I say to you, everyone who looks, looks has the idea of gazing, it's not a glance. It's not something that comes across your screen and you just keep scrolling. To look is to, to gaze or to look for an extended period of time to stop the scrolling, to not skip that section of the show, but to continue to what That's the idea. It's gazing. So it's not a glance. It's, it's a gaze. He says, everyone who looks at a woman... with with lustful intent. Lustful intent is objectifying the one you're looking at as an object to be used for your own pleasure. Lustful intent, let me say that again, is objectifying the one you are looking at as an object to be used for your own pleasure. So it's gazing at that person With the objectifying of them, that they are there for your pleasure, that they are there for your desires. He says, if anyone looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. Adultery is a heart issue. You don't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think today I'll sleep around on my spouse. It starts years before that. When you look, and men, I would speak specifically to you, but women, I'm not giving you an out to say that you don't struggle with lust in your own heart. If you read statistics and you read on lust amongst women, it is rising at a rapid rate as well. It may not be in the same way that a man would lust or objectify a woman, but you are doing the same thing. So I I say that with yes, I'm going to go after the guys here for just a second, but I understand that we live in a culture where women are struggling with lust in their heart as well. But men, he says, it starts in our hearts. Years before you commit adultery, it has began by you gazing, looking, objectifying women through your eyes. You want to watch this happen? Go to a Chiefs game. And watch a pretty girl walk by and watch the men's eyes. That's looking and objectifying women. And it comes on us. Let's stop blaming them. And let's take personal responsibility that it begins in our hearts. That we have rather than seen that woman as an image bearer of God, and if she is a sister of Christ, as a sister in Christ, instead we are objectifying them. We are seeing them as objects for our pleasure. And that is a wrong way to look at a woman. And Jesus says if you've done that you've already committed adultery in your heart. Uh, I think this is must have been when Jesus did the Sermon on the Mount. It's probably pretty quiet in the audience. Because why? I, didn't, I haven't committed adultery, Jesus my righteousness probably does exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees because I haven't committed adultery. Then Jesus gets radical in verse 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin and cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It's like, Jesus, could we choose a different word besides hell in all these situations? But why is he using that? Because he wants us to to see the the, uh, extreme consequences of choosing our sin over God. This is not a game that we're playing. See, the Bible says that a good tree is going to bear what? Good fruit. And a bad tree is going to bear bad fruit. A good tree can't bear bad fruit. And a bad tree can't bear good fruit. So this is why he's getting to the heart And he's saying, if you see these things in your life, you need to deal with them. He is saying, you must make radical sacrifices for eternal joy. Sinful lust leads to a dead end road and can lead you to hell. So Jesus says, get radical with your sin. Are we to literally translate this verse to pluck out our eye and to cut our hand off? Well, an early church father thought so. So he decided to roll around naked over sharp briars to try and cure himself from his sexual desires. So he rolled around and thought, maybe if I punish myself, I won't have these sexual desires anymore. Well, you you know what probably happened. Didn't work, right? Might have worked for a season, but it didn't completely work. When that didn't work, he got radical and he castrated himself. And I love what the commentator said on this. He would later, I'm sorry, this is just funny to me. He would later regret this decision and conclude that he may have misinterpreted what Jesus meant. <laughs> I just love that, that line that that commentator says. He would later regret this decision and may have misinterpreted what Jesus meant. And I would say, yeah, he probably did misinterpret it. Why? did this not work for this early church father? Because Jesus was ultimately after the heart of the man and the woman, not their eye and their hand. He's saying, deal radically with your sin. John Owens puts it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I think that's a good way to think about verses 29 and thirty, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. When is the last time you got aggressive with sin in your life? It doesn't have to be lust necessarily. But when is the last time the Holy Spirit convicted you of a sin in your life and you got radical with dealing with it? You didn't be like, well, it's, it's okay, right? We'll, we'll sort of see how this goes. But that you really got after it and said, I'm gonna pluck my eye out, right? Like I'm gonna cut my hand up. I'm gonna take the radical sacrifices that it means so that I can jo- enjoy eternal joy with Jesus Christ. And so I'm willing to deal with it in a radical way. Be killing sin, church. Our sin will be killing us. Then, gets even more fun, divorce. Verse 31 and 32. And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery adultery. Jesus in verse 31 is referring to a command given in Deuteronomy chapter 24 in verses 1 through 4, where if a man divorces his wife because the Deuteronomy 24 says something indecent in her, he must give her a certificate of divorce, and if she then becomes another man's wife and is divorced again, the first man cannot remarry her. This was a double restriction that was put in this command. You would have a certificate of divorce and the prohibition of remarriage. And what that was, goal was, was to discourage hasty divorces. What had happened in Jesus' time is is God had set this this grounds for divorce up in the law and you come to Jesus' time and what had happened is they began to hand out these divorce certificates like candy. Like it wasn't just about, as Jesus would say here, a ground for divorce is sexual immorality. It wasn't just about sexual immorality. It was like, did your wife burn the dinner last night? get a certificate of divorce. Is she lazy? Get a certificate of divorce. And so they were scribes. they were handing out these certificates of divorce, just like candy, right? And so Jesus says, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, get a certificate. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual normality, immorality makes her commit adultery. And we know what Jesus thinks about adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus, I believe, is not actually talking to those who are divorced. He is talking to those who are married. And he is saying, stop contemplating in your heart how you can get out of your marriage and start cultivating the marriage you are in. Stop flirting with the other person and start pursuing your spouse. Stop looking for a way out and start pushing into the one that you are with. What Jesus is doing is he's holding up the original intent of marriage. The original intent of marriage found in Genesis chapter two and verse 24, and Jesus reiterates it in Matthew chapter 19, verses three through six, is one man and one woman for life. That is God's plan for marriage. And in that moment, he is calling those who are sitting in the audience who are thinking, you know, well, I could get a divorce. My wife's lazy. I can get a divorce. My wife ticked me off last week. He's saying, no, 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 no. That's not why I set up Deuteronomy chapter 24. I set it up to protect the wife from being thrown out on the street and having nothing so that she would be taken care of. And I've allowed, as he's gonna say in Matthew 19, divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, that my original intent is that we would be true to one man and one woman for life. That is God's design for marriage. So what if you were hearing this today maybe for the first time, and you are in your second or third or fourth marriage. I think of what Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery, and I would say to this, the person in this room who's murdered someone, the person in this room who's committed adultery, I'm saying it to you as well in this room, go and sin no more. The goal is moving forward, prioritize the marriage that you were in. Honor the covenant you've made with the person you're with for the rest of your life. And if you find yourself in the middle of a divorce, I want you to know today that you are loved by God and you're loved by this church. I want you to know that your divorce does not make you damaged goods no more than cancer makes someone damaged goods. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a child of God, you matter. And Romans eight says nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So don't you walk out of this room today and think I'm not loved because I've been divorced. You, of course you're loved, that's ridiculous. That's the lie of the enemy that would say that you're damaged goods. That's not what Jesus is saying here either. Because then we're all messed up, right? Because why? It goes back to the gospel. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And divorce is no greater than any other thing than murder, than adultery, right? It it all is not God's original intent. And so let's leave here today. And if we're married Let's prioritize our marriage. Let's raise the original design that God said in Genesis and let's prioritize our spouse and let's prioritize our marriage. And if you're in the middle of a divorce, just know, we love you. We're for you. In a relationship, it's always good to know what your expectations are, right? When I do premarital counseling, and as pastors, we do premarital counseling through a book called Tying the Knot. In chapter 5 of that book, the title of it is Roles and Expectations. And one of the things I love about, it's my favorite chapter to go through a premarital counseling couple with. Because why? One of the dangers of a relationship is that you go into it without knowing what the expectations are. Right? And it's like, oh, I thought you would do that. A lot of conflict comes from the lack of understanding of expectations. And the thing I love about what Jesus is doing for us here is he's making it clear what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's making his expectations clear. I don't want you just to be able to raise your hand and say, I didn't murder, haven't committed adultery, I'm not divorced. He's wanting you to say, I'm guarding my heart against anger. I'm guarding my heart against love. I'm prioritizing the marriage that I'm in. That's what he's after. He's after our hearts. Father, thank you for, man, what a heavy day. And I knew it was coming and we prayed about it as pastors this week because you can't talk about these three things without upsetting somebody. But I pray that we've had our hearts upset a little bit today in a good way. In a way that would push us into our relationship with you. That would cause us to remember that this is not for a relationship with you. This is from, this is you being clear about what you're after. That you're not just after our outward obedience. You want our heart. So for the person struggling with bitterness in the room today. Lord, give him the grace to deal with that. Give them the courage to go to that person and tell them, you you hurt my feelings. Or to go to a person and say, listen, when you did that, it, it really upset me. I pray for the person that struggles with lust. Help them to get radical with the sacrifices they need to make so that they can enjoy eternal joy with you that the good fruit of the good heart would produce good fruit in their lives. Lord, guard our church, guard the men and the women of our church from looking with lustful intents in their hearts toward the opposite sex. And Lord, I pray for the marriages in our church. Strengthen them. Help us to prioritize our marriages I pray for the men in this room, that they would be leaders of their homes and leaders of their marriage, that they would pursue their wives. That as Peter calls us, that we would live with our wives in an understanding way. Help us to not be lazy in our marriages, but to work hard at them. Not for our good, but for your glory. And if we do it for your glory, the thing I love about you, Lord, is you're so kind to do it for our good in return. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.